Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the first 2024 episode of Sports and Torts. Hope you all had a wonderful holiday season, had a happy new year, and are off to a strong start to 2024. I myself enjoyed some time off and enjoyed seeing so many of you guys out there at dinners and parties and, and around town. And it's always very funny that that a conversation that always is brought up when I see people is, is about this podcast and asking about it. And uh, I, I truly thank all of y'all for listening and wanting to talk about it and letting me and my friends like John have some fun with it. So we will keep this train rolling in 2024. So doing that, we are starting off strong, starting off hot with my friend and fellow lawyer and fellow East Cobb resident, John Marigliano. I know, um, you know, most of the guests before they come on, I, I know them were friends and, and that's true with John. Um, but, you know, I still do what I call internet stalking on all of my guests so that I'm prepared for these interviews. And it's always pretty fun because, you know, no matter how much or how well I know somebody, I learn more things about them that I either didn't know or I'd forgotten. So I did that for today's episode. And I got to tell you that, uh, John, your online profile, um, it rivals the Dos Equis guy from lawyer to judge to MMA official to NFL scout scout to restaurateur to bar licenses in three different states my friend you really might be the most interesting man you, in the world you did some digging i applaud you i didn't know the nfl scout thing was popping up that was uh <laughs> that's been a while that's been a while yeah but that's a cool thing too so yeah, a minute. Yeah. i mean you, you you've done it all so thank you for coming here today and we'll try to touch of many of that stuff as we can Perfect. Love yeah, it. Looking you, forward to it. Let's do you, go. Do you have a good holiday season? Had an awesome holiday. Got uh got my young teenage daughters out of East Cobb up to my my hunting grounds, New York City. And so that was the first time I've had three straight days with them without their friends involved in a year and a half. So it was nice to rediscover the daddy-daughter relationship. Hopefully a place with no uh, cell phone service too. <laughs> they had some. They had some, but they knew if they were going to get the... Um, the donuts and everything else they wanted up there. They needed some daddy time. So they did a good job. So that, I, was, I was pumped. That's cool. So your kids are about the same age as mine, right? 13, 15, one in Dodge and uh, freshman at Walton. Yes. Uh, my daughter is 15 also, about to be 16 though. It's, uh, we're, we're both that's in, great. yes, we're both in store for some crazy times coming ahead with these driver's licenses. Yeah, I've I've actually rung up and and you might be on the list too of when I'm about ready to lose my cool at some guy texting my daughter before I embarrass her in front of her friends. I usually call somebody I know and say, "Would you do this?" And the answer invariably is no. So I would not. Show them to the closet with all the guns. Is that the uh, is that the idea when the, when the boys come the, over? The, the phrase they they both know that when they come, I'm going to say I, I know every judge, cop, and MMA fighter in Georgia. <laughs> so they need to be respectful. So, so they know that's coming, and they're embarrassed just thinking about so it. So let me ask you a question: Like, can you list off three categories of people that are more intimidating than what you just said? Judge, cops, and MMA fighters? I don't know. Serial killers would intimidate me. <laughs> Otherwise, I like to think I've got some backing. Some. Not all, but some. That's so good. Well, um, so you had a good holiday season, and now we're in January, and we talked about you know the podcast, and you told me you're doing Dry January, which I'm very proud of you about. So people listening, tell what this Dry January is. It's kind of caught on some steam recently. Dry January doesn't start till January 2nd, which was my cautionary tale to you, because otherwise we would all fail January 1st. But... No alcohol, and then I get on a crazy little diet where I'm about 11, 1,200 calories, which is fine. Six ounces of fruit three times a day and six ounces of protein twice, six ounces of broccoli or, or some green, and I'm good to go. And February, you're going to feel good. Get February, I'm going to feel good and put at least half of it back. But that's all right. That's all right. We, we got to learn how to titrate and go in moderation this year. Well, I just got to say, we're not on video, um, but I am enjoying a bourbon. You gave me permission, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not upsetting the apple cart here by, by me drinking a bourbon. I would hope so. Most people don't find me enjoyable unless they're totally drunk. So I, I hope you're on your way. That's so good. All right. So before we get into to talking about stuff I want to talk about with you, um, I do want to bring up something special that we talked about just prior to the starting um, that's going to be happening on this podcast in about two months. 
And what it is, um, Parag Shaw, who you know, he is a um, or is a lawyer in town. He's now the CEO of Miles Mediation. Um, he's a big supporter of a charity called Side by Side, which is this really cool organization in Georgia. Um, they are a work-oriented day program that provides support for adults um, with brain injuries and helps rebuild their lives. I mean, in you and I's job, we come across clients all the time that have been you know brain injured in truck wrecks or car wrecks or whatever. So. Um, it's something that hits home to me too. But so, so what Parag told me, uh, and for those of you that, that don't know him, we'll post some pictures of him, but he's got this beautiful flowing long hair, as you know. Um, and he told me that if uh, he raises $10,000 from people um, to give to side by side, he will come on this podcast on March the 5th. And we'll do a video podcast where he will literally shave his head live on the podcast. Listen, I, I would I would love to join them, but only as a shaver and not the shavy. Um, and this is a great thing. Both if you're a good person, you'll donate just to donate. If you're a bad person, you want to see those those golden locks go. So that should be incentive enough. So that's well put. Oh, uh, so this really should appeal to everybody out there. So open them up and let's get this guy bald. I think that'd be fantastic. Do it for good reasons. Do it for bad reasons, but just do it. And what <laughs> he, what right. he told me was he said that he's even open to whoever, whoever two or three people donate the most. He'll let them take a whack at the hair so they can actually be the ones that. Uh, that do the shaving. So. Listen, a couple extra hundred and you shave your initials on the one side of his head. Uh, how are you going to pass that up? I love it. I love you can. It. He sees a lot of people. That's free advertising. That's it. Well, more to, more to come on this in the next few weeks. But uh, all right, back to you, John. So people that don't know you, uh, you mentioned your New York roots, but just talk about where you're from, where you grew up, family, things like that. Long Island kid right outside of Queens. Uh, most of the family's still there. I was the black sheep that, that went down south and to be frank with you, I came down to Emory because it was either go to law school in Boston, D.C. or Atlanta. I'd been to all three. The Super Bowl was coming here. The Olympics were coming. And I figured I'd dip down to the south before going back to New York. But um, I wound up enjoying it and I wound up staying. Um, so college brought you down here. And then, hey, Georgia's a great place to live. So made it, made it your home. Great place to live. Great place to live. I, I never intended to be a lawyer, but once once I did and got a job offer here, then then I was happy to stay down here. It, interestingly, my, my oldest friend in the world, we bought houses on the exact same day, him on Long Island outside of Queens and me down here, and we paid within $2,000. And um, his was much, much smaller. He had to build a bunch of bunk beds in a small little basement. So the cost of Long Island's high. So well, this has been wonderful. That's the thing. I mean, think about all the people during COVID in the last couple of years that have left, you know, either West Coast states or Northeastern states come down here and like, we cannot believe how much house we are getting to your, to your point. It's crazy. And then if you like trees and grasses and you grew up in the city, which I didn't, but some of my friends did, they, they're agog when they come down here like, man, you got big property. And it's not really that big. It's just bigger it's than just a bigger, apart, than bigger apartment on East yeah. 72nd Street. Well, we sure like it. So, And your wife's a lawyer too, right? She's a lawyer. She came from the the opposite side. She was a Hattiesburg um, baby in a Baton Rouge, and but she wound up going to last her the last three years. So we met at work. Um, before there was an anti-nepotism policy, um, but we were at Hall Booth. Most folks know that, and they still remain. Um, I'm very appreciative for what they did for both of us. For sure. So I'll throw that out there. For sure. Now, she's doing personal injury cases as well, right? She's Has working out of the world headquarters in East Cobb. Yeah, that's right. yeah. That's it, man. That, that's, that's perfect. Now, do y'all work on cases together? Do y'all roundtable cases? How does that a little like, round table, you know, the benefit of being in a firm and I, we've got eight lawyers now is you, you can run something by someone at any time and you don't have to feel you have to make the decisions. She, perhaps like you, you know, sometimes it's difficult. Um, you have a, a huge network of folks to call. And so over dinner, I'm happy to try to work things out there and see what makes sense for her cases. She ever give you hell and you're, and she's like, man, you sell that case for too little or man, that was great. You sell that case for, that was awesome. Like, cause she knows, right. <laughs> she, she knows the value. Um, she does mostly car wreck. She doesn't do the, the nursing home or med mal that we do. So, uh, if, if she has a thought, particularly a pleasant one, she's kind enough to keep that in check <laughs> and not vocalize. She vocalizes everything else, but not that. So Hall Booth, everybody knows the firm, great defense firm. Uh, I came from a big defense firm too. I like you speak and feel very highly about my time there. And it was, it was great experience, great people, um, enjoyed my time there. Sounds like the same with you. 
I did. And when I joined, I think I was the 15th lawyer. So when, when I joined, it was very, very small. It was mostly just medical malpractice defense. And, and what I always appreciate about them is if you had an idea and mine was sports law, they said, go make it happen. We'll fund you. We'll support you. Just keep your get your work done. Now, the firm has grown. I, I can't even begin to know how many lawyers. And, and obviously, the bigger you get, the more people come in. And at times, I know the plaintiff's bar it gets rubbed a little the wrong way with some folks there, but I think that's true with every defense firm. So I'll, I'll stand by. They they did a great job with me. I have nothing unkind to say about them. Yeah. And most of the stuff you're working on was medical stuff. Is that where you got the training medical cases? Yeah. So mostly med, medical malpractice defense. And then I did I did some trucking, uh, which was helpful. I didn't realize on the plaintiff's side how significant trucking was until I got to the plaintiff's side. So I was thankful for that defense training on, on trucking. But yeah, I'd say the majority was medical malpractice, which was interesting and entertaining. Can't turn down a good uh, trucking case, right? No, you cannot. Uh, you know, you get one or two of those and, and you're doing all right. You're right, yeah. The, the, fun, the old joke, people say, what, what kind of cases do you like? Well, I like uh, clear liability, fatality truck cases. Like, let's with, do those. With a couple of nuns. Yeah, yeah, with a couple of nuns. Like, like if, that, if that's the kind of what we're asking, like, that's what I want to do. I, uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, So. Uh, that's good. Now you, um, you left there and as you go straight to starting the plaintiff's firm you're with now. So small segue, uh, Brittany and I left, that's when we started the restaurant down in, um, in Gulfport and Biloxi that did not go as we had planned, but it went pretty much the way 98% of restaurants went. We were down there for two years, came back to hall booth, and then we both left in 2012. And that's when I started my firm. She went and worked with the the Blasting Game firm, which was great for a couple of years, and she started her firm. So Mexicali, that was a restaurant. Mexicali Grill, that's right. We 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 stole Willie and Mo's idea, and we threw a sports bar on the beach. And for a year, we actually had a lot of fun, but it, it was not the best environment to raise a kid. And our daughter was born at the end of October. We had a get out of out of prison card at the end of December. We exercised, got out of the lease, and is that a out. is that a franchise? I think there's one in Athens, right? No, no, it was us. It was y'all? Oh, okay. It, it, it was us. My managing partner, Mike Pinier, at the time was brother-in-law with the original Willie. And when Willie opened his first in Chastain Park, the first Willie's, I was living there with two other buddies. And we went there every day, so I got to know him. Okay. And when we decided we needed a change, we realized we have no other talents whatsoever. We thought, well, why don't we open a Tex-Mex grill like Willie's? Her parents were down on the coast in Biloxi, and we figured that's as good a place as any. So that's why we did it. Okay. So my wife did retail for a couple of years. It's hard work. Retail, restaurant, it's tough. It was ridiculous. We went through 86 employees in, in one year. Probably was put in 110 hours. We were open till 2 o'clock, six days a week, and 11 on Sunday. It, it was rough. The, the law firm life seemed pretty good after that, huh? Law, you know, you never appreciate the law until you're out of the law. So do you have a, do you have a liquor license? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. So tell, describe for me the pricing on big beers and small beers, those kind of restaurants, because the Los Bravos here, the Los Arcos here, it's the best deal in town. It is. I'm trying to remember at the time, and I knew all the statistics back then. So we're going back 10, 12 years, but I remember like a 16 ounce pour was maybe 30, 32 cents. Okay. And so you could easily sell it for 250. Again, this is going back then. And then if you do half price, you know, at happy hour, you're, you're still making four times the money. You're still making money. You did. And so, so what we did at, at certain times, there was an Air Force, Keesler Air Force Base, and we got a strong following of not only the Air Force guys, but there was a, um, a weather school there. So guys from the army, the Navy, they would come in. And so we would do like buy a burrito, get five free beers, just, just to bring them in here. And so we, you have a lot of flexibility with beer pricing when you're in the restaurant business. That's for sure. You still liking burritos and tacos or did you get kind of OD'd on them? No, still like them other than in dry January. I'm not eating them. No. <laughs> but Britt does, does a good job. She makes about 60 cases, not cases, 60 cans of homemade salsa we still give out. No kidding. I didn't uh, know that. And, and you were invited, couldn't make it yeah, to I, our St. Jorge Day party, which yeah. is based on when we sold the place and the money got deposited, okay. which was another story in itself. That, that was a lot <laughs> Of fun so we celebrate getting out of mississippi told you guys the, the doseki man is sitting across from me uh all right came back started a law firm um i know mike i know dan i mean a bunch of your partners so we're all all y'all start at the same time or uh the firm started at the same time mike and dan were working up in cartersville um it was uh peralta prieto and con brian con was a 
bankruptcy guy, still a good friend of the firm. Tony Peralta kind of did a little bit of everything. So Dan and Mike were there. Bill was actually living in Douglas, Georgia. Bill and I went to law school together. Somehow, not through me, Bill and Mike had crossed ways and Bill was helping out Mike in nursing home cases in South of Georgia. So we actually had, a, I was defending Wellstar. They had a case. They were insisting it was a long-term care facility that was regulated. And so we committed 85 regulations. We insisted this is a hospital. And so over that case, somehow the fuse got lit. Eh, you know, what if we started our own firm? And so that's how it came about. All right. So you were on the defense side of a case and got to know those guys and they're on the plaintiff side of the case. Well, I always knew Bill because I went to law school. With right. Him. But then, but, and I was working the case with Bill. Um, but through Bill, I got to know Mike and then Dan. I love hearing those kind of stories because when I switched to do plaintiff's work, of course, I joined up with Andy Goldner, who's a good friend of yours. And we knew each other kind of from Athens, but we really got reacquainted when we worked on a case together where he was the plaintiff's lawyer and I was the defense lawyer. So kind of similar, you know, that's I mean, great. And, and that's why I preach the young lawyers. I, unless you have to be an ass to the other side, don't, you know, cause you just never know where those contacts are going to go. If you can get along, number one, it makes the job easier, but two, selfishly, it might help you down the road when you're playing switch. Amen. Amen. Like I, you asked me how many of these episodes I've done. This is about 90 ish. Maybe I don't know how many of them are lawyers, but to a, to a person, that is the advice that they always give. Just what you just said. I mean, and, and it just, it upsets me. There's still so many lawyers out there that take other approaches, scorch earth fights for no reason. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, it's just, it's just not a good way to go about it. Yeah. I've, I've just, it's, it's just been so much easier. I remember when I was on the defense side and I'd negotiate cases with Phil Henry and Glenn Cushell and Lance, you know, some of the Titans of the plaintiff's bar. And we always had, we always had a great relationship and it paid off when I moved to the plaintiff side and, you know, we're all friends now. So uh, it, interestingly, I, I got to throw a Phil Henry story out. There was two main reasons I decided to to leave to do the plaintiff. One was I'd gotten a defense verdict. Folks had asked for about fifty million, got a defense verdict, and then like within two days after getting all sorts of accolades from the insurance company, they sliced the bill. Correct. Yep. <laughs> you know because you did research at nine o'clock at night in the middle of a trial that wasn't pre authorized. Right. But I remember I was negotiating a case down right before with Phil and. An, we were in the last stages where we knew each other well enough. We could get to the point and say, you know, I got this. What do you got? And so we had those, I'll go up, you go down emails. And I'd send him an email. And the next morning I'd get in, I'd see an email from him at like 3.48 a.m. And then I'd send one and I'd see one at 4.12. And so after two or three episodes, I finally wrote him something to the effect of, are you sleeping all right? And he wrote back the next day that, you know. 5.30. Yeah, why? I said, well, why are all your emails between Three and 5 and 6? And he said something effective. Oh, we're, we're spending the summer in Capri. I'm there doing my go. work from there. I'm there like, you go. When you tell an Italian guy, that, that ain't going to happen. I'm on the defense side. So That's pretty awesome. That was a good That was a good moment. Like, there may be something to this plaintiff side. That sounds pretty attractive. That yeah, yeah. versus the, the 9 o'clock getting your bills cut. Same thing happened to me. I'm like, just kicked ass in a case, save you $50 million, and you're going to nickel and dime over – you know, a bill that helped me win that case for you. Right. It's just, it's just so upsetting. So the nursing home stuff, um, I, I used to defend a few of those cases. I've never handled one on the plaintiff side. Um, and I've never had anybody on this podcast talk about like a nursing home case. I know that, that, uh, Mike does a ton of those, your firm does a bunch of those, you do a bunch of those. So, bunch of those now. so, um, kind of people that, that aren't familiar with that kind of work, those kind of cases, like what's a normal fact pattern? How do you go about handling them? What's unique about those cases? So, so the nursing home and, and I too fall in this category before I got into them, like, you know, these these are unfortunately these are 90 year old folks with a gazillion comorbidities how can you prove that the dehydration or the fall or anything that caused their life uh caused them to lose their life and the, the significant difference but i came from a med mal world where you know you got fantastic lawyers that are battling you know, liability and particularly causation they'll find five experts that say even if he was liable this didn't contribute um, you don't have that level of causation defense on the nursing home. Um, nursing home, unlike hospitals, federal regulations. You, you, get, you got these um, over-regulations which talk about dignity and what you need to do. And kind of like trucking cases, which are regulated federally, you dig into a case long enough, you're going to find violations. So you, so you have a 
you have two or three steps beyond a med malfact pattern where you can already get some liability. And there's always the fight, well, a violation of the regs does not necessarily mean a violation of the standard of care. But once you ask the expert, what's the purpose of these regulations? Are folks at liberty to ignore or disobey them? Eventually they fall and so you got the liability. And so then you get the causation. Um, in our world though, a lot of the folks, once you can put six, seven, eight violations, um, the defense is willing to talk. And as long as we prepare a client ahead of time, you know, this is what, for this case, we think is reasonable. Are you in agreement? Ultimately, it's the client's choice, but we've told them ahead of time, if you're expecting $4 million, we have to go to trial, and quite honestly, we're not going to get it. So um, I've enjoyed doing them. It's totally different than the, it took me a while to adjust to the regulations and causation, but usually you can find causation or you know, we're, we're in medical, there's one reason someone died with nursing, as long as someone can say, this, without this, I don't think he would have died on this, on day. this day. Could he die the next day, a Maybe. week later? Yeah. Yes, and then goes to the jury. And thankfully, we've got a couple decent pops, so people don't want to go to trial. So you mentioned going to the jury. Um, those cases, are they one that the defense is trying to get summary judgment, like work up to summary judgment? Or is... Because I guess that, I do a lot of purposes cases, and that's always the analysis. Like, can the defense get summary judgment? Once we kind of get past that, then they pay. Is that analysis similar to y'all, or is I not really set up for summary judgment? I can't remember the last time someone threw an MSJ on causation against us. Um, you know, they'll challenge us, but we, we have enough experts that there's some great studies that talk about the traumatic effect of, let's say, a fall. You know, mm -hmm. most of the nursing home cases, someone fell, broke a femur, and then died soon after, or someone got a bed wound, got infected. And so there's enough good data out there that talks about the effects on a geriatric body of both falls and trauma. And if you can link a sacral wound, usually they go to the hospital and they do cultures. If you can say, you know, it's the infection that most likely became infected and came from the sacral wound or something else, you got causation. Do you see the same defense lawyers on the, on the All case? All the time, yeah. which is good, which is good because I have a lot of, you know, the folks at Huff Powell, Craig Brooks and all those folks. And then, you know, the hall booth folks, we, we see the same four or five firms. That's great. We'll, we'll get, a, you know, tolling extensions. If we get something close to the statute, we'll, we'll give them sometimes to our um, disservice extensions on discovery. But again, it's easier to work with someone you have respect for. It goes back to what you said in the beginning, right? Like working collegially with the other side. It's just a better way to go about it. And you see these same lawyers time and time again. And you're going to need a favor at some point in time. You're going to need, you know, need, need something. Exactly. And, and they're going to be much more likely to give it to you. You mentioned, um, you know, getting a few good pops and people kind of recognizing your firm with those kind of cases, which ultimately is, is, a, is a huge driving force, right? They know you all know what you're doing. You've done it before. You can have the ability to prosecute the case, win the case, and it just tees it up for a, a good status, right? It does. I mean, I fully think, number one, we love trials. I mean, I think a lot of trial lawyers like it. It's just, it's difficult. There's so many obstacles to get to trial, many times your own client. Um, and we get a lot of folks who, you know, they're, they're looking paycheck to paycheck. And if something's dangled in front of them, it's, it's tough to legitimately convince them not to take it just because we want the glory of a trial win. And so when we do have those opportunities, we're very thankful for them, but we, we can't at all uh, fault our clients. The money they offer, while maybe we think is a little undervalued, it's meaningful to them. It's funny you bring that up because when I was a defense lawyer, I don't know if your experience was the same, but I thought the cases that were going to trial were because, not all the time, but because the, the clients were really greedy, the plaintiffs wanted more, the plaintiffs, I found the opposite doing this work and representing the plaintiffs. Like they, if the if the money's reasonable, like they'd rather take it than go to trial. I think they do, and and then you you always have intra family issues where two of the brothers and three of the sisters are on board, but two aren't, and we we seem to have cases where we're not dealing with just one, but we're dealing with the family, and there's always varying degrees because two or three want to push it and honor their dad, but one really needs the money. So there's a compromise family decision before, you know, we hear a compromise jury verdicts. And, <laughs> and so I, I know, so I, I'm not judging anyone that does it differently. We, we totally tell our folks, you make this decision. We'll give you the pros and cons. And we will tell you, we think you're making a grave mistake. But if you want to settle for too little or you want to try it, even though the offer is fair, we got your back. We, we got you. You brought up an interesting point um, that I hadn't really thought about. That when I, you know, my clients, it's, it's, I'm talking with the person making the decision, right? But you're talking with families because 
the type of cases you work on. So the dynamics must be all across the board with one brother and one sister or grandparents or figuring out who actually is the proper party or who has the decision-making ability. I mean, there, there'll be, you know, a personal representative of the family who is the legal figurehead for trial. But many times that person is beholden to various brothers or sisters. And so there is an interesting dynamic, which, which, if not manageable, can cause issues. But that's why we, we, we try to have what we call our come to Jesus meeting before we even sign up the case and just say, this is how we operate. You know, we will make the decisions about the litigation. Do we file this motion? Not do we take this step, but you ultimately make the decision about settlement or trial. Part of your job, I guess, is filtering out who are the decision makers, who you need to speak with, who will listen and um, create relationships with those people, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Dumb question. So I do a lot of um, daycare negligence cases. And in those cases, when someone gets hurt on um, on a daycare facility, right from the start, the Georgia State Agency, um, there's mandatory re- reporting requirements. They come in, they do an investigation, they talk with you know the, the teachers, they interview people, whatever, look at video cameras, and they come up with their own conclusions about what, what what happened? Is the same thing happen in nursing home? They do. Uh, they they come in. They so if if grandma's dropped, um, number one, there could be a police report. Uh, number two, uh, Department of Health and Human Services could come in. And so nursing homes primarily, there's a couple of, of of ones out there. They're relying on Medicare and Medicaid money. And so in order to keep that, uh, they will get a letter showing the deficiencies. And within 30 or 45 days, I forget, I think it's 30 days, they, they have to put together a plan that addresses each deficiency. Mm-hmm. And then if they're inspected again and they continue to uh, fall short of what has been recommended to them, then they could lose ultimately Medicare and Medicaid funding. Um, and so you can't use that as proof of negligence uh, just because it's someone else's investigation. You get into all the hearsay problems with that. But it certainly has helped us in the past because you can get FOIA requests to them and you can get that information. And in that information, you're going to find witnesses that uh, properly or improperly were not disclosed to you by the defense. M- many times the defense doesn't yeah. know these folks either. But can you still use it to kind of kickstart showing the other side? Look, there's this has been looked at once before, there's going to be some problems. You can. And and the overwhelming majority of defense lawyers we work with are great, competent jurors, I mean, uh, lawyers, and they tell their client, listen, we already got docked by the state, so we can't just claim that our hands are clean. So this is a case we need to pay money. How much money do we pay? That's the question. That's how it goes with our daycare cases, is that once that investigative finding comes out and says that they violated 591-8- you know whatever right that's kind of i won't say it but we like look guys like you said these competent defense store defense lawyers like this is the finding the state had like it's gonna, same thing's gonna play out in depositions the same thing's gonna play out with these witnesses and that just kind of sends us on our way so and that, that is the good thing while, while you may not be able to show that this investigator the state came and found these you can certainly use that documentation to impeach the experts who usually wind up caving in a little bit saying uh well i i agree this probably could have done better and so their standard of care criticisms or or, or their defenses start weakening yeah so these experts i mean you're traveling potentially all over the country on these cases, right? We're, we're going a lot. Um, I, I had a hellacious November and December, which actually wasn't bad because I had friends in most of the states I visited. So selfishly, it wasn't that bad, just the travel was. But yeah, we're, you know, we, we do use doctors mostly for causation. We do use geriatricians for liability. We got wound care nurses and wound care doctors and, and the rest. So, there, and there's three types. There's ALFs and, and personal care homes and, um, sniffs skilled nursing facilities so you have to find experts lined up with both and and sometimes it's tough to find them in georgia all right where are you currently falling as of january 2024 on taking these out-of-town depositions in person or via zoom i like them in person i i always have i always will i like handing a doctor a document that he has not expecting or that he or she wasn't prepped on and i just think it's so if for me it's more effective than on Zoom, number one, because technologically I'm an idiot, so I can't do it. Um, but listen, Zoom's been great for convenience purposes. That's just me. There, there are folks I admire who swear the other side, and that's great. So it's whatever you is, but I personally like going in person. It's fascinating how very smart, very successful people can feel so differently about the experience over Zoom, right? I think that most people um, fall in line with what you're saying, but there's others that swear they will never get on an airplane again, Absolutely. take another deposition. They will never do it again. And their reasons make sense. 
Um, forget the convenience of it, but just I've heard some people say that they have found that witnesses let their guard down when they're talking to a computer because they don't feel it's as big of an event or as big of a deal. And so they're getting more concessions. Their lawyer's not with them. Um, they're like, kind of, you know, whatever. And they've gotten huge successes that way. So I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think sometimes we, we analyze a little too much. I, I, think to their credit, the ones that like the Zooms, they're just really good lawyers. And so concessions they get maybe because they re- did a really good job, not necessarily Zoom. And, and maybe I'm getting concessions because I did all right with that witness. But I that's just how I trained. Um, I, I don't change well with technology. I'm used to bringing three copies of an exhibit in my binder and handing it out to everybody. And that's what I feel comfortable with. And if I'm more comfortable, I take a better deposition. No, totally. So I'm going to give a, a shout out and plug to LTS. I'm sure you use them for your depositions. They do great videography work. So I'm like you in terms of, I didn't like the uneasiness of how the technology is going to work and screen sharing. And like, I don't want to be thinking about that when I'm asking my questions. Um, LTS, they will do all that for you. So basically I send them, here are my 25 exhibits, you know, one through 25. And when I get to it, I just say, you know, Miss Videographer, please pull up exhibit number three or whatever it might be. And they pull it up and they handle all the zooming in and the clicking and the showing. And it's actually, I found pretty darn convenient to um, alleviate that stressor in the process. It is good. But one of the things that and there may be a solution. I just don't know if, again, I'm not a technological whiz, is I like having doctors mark things. So number one, if there was a fall near a nursing station or even with a nurse, you know, t- tell, tell me where the nursing station, where was our patient, where was this? Can put your initial here. And usually I have a good relationship with the defense firm. So they're, they're not objecting. But then if, you know, the doctor says something that I know this is going to be a key point. Um, I'll, I'll have them initial. I, I'll have pre, you know, Dr. Smith believes X. Do you agree or disagree? If you agree, you know, and I'll have them sign it. Cool. And so I think the cases I know go to trial. That does. And I'm going to give shout out to Evan Jones. Uh, that's one of his tricks in doing. And I think he does a great job with it. But so I like that type of stuff where doctors can show me things. And if you want, not even, not just doctors, but especially in truck wrecks and premises, I like when people can mark things and give it to you. All right. So let's dive in that a little bit more because I like that too. So you have a point that you know is going to be made or you hope is going to be made. You write it out. And then once it gets pulled out in the testimony, you give them an exhibit with it written down and they initial it? Yeah. So so one we use, I thought, fairly effective in DeKalb County at a, at a trial. And again, I'm giving shout out to Evan is um, pick a statement that Dr. Smith believes that the world is flat. Agreed. And there's a box. Disagree. Check. And we had six or seven of those. And we had six or seven that we knew were going to help our case. And so, so we would show it to them in, uh, during the, the cross-examination trial. Now, you agreed then and you agree now. You agree then. And then in, in, during closing argument, I highlighted that just to so, show what I thought was a fallacy of some of their medical defenses. And it went over very well. That's awesome. And so each one of those statements, are they individual exhibits, individual pieces of paper? Can be. Can be? Can be. Yeah. I mean, change it up. And, and I, I certainly don't do it in every case. I probably don't even do it in the majority of cases. But if I know that this doctor is going to say one thing that I know I can prove him wrong at either because it's based upon an assumption that was wrong or it's based on something he read. And I know the literature has changed. I'd, I'd like him to sign something, just lock him in. And documents speak so loud too, right? Like just being able to see something, touch it, look at it. I think it's great. All right. So speaking of being in court, speaking of doing smart things, you yourself sit on the other side of the bench as the judge. Magistrate Court Judge of Cobb County. I do, but not for civil actions. All criminal. All criminal stuff? All criminal. I I, I had once thought romantically of a night court. and Because when I, when I started, Hall Booth was sending me out to these dental cases in magistrate court. You go to a small county. And it was entertaining. It would start at six. You'd be with your dentist there till like 11 o'clock at night. And you watch Bob and Steve fight over. Bob, you know, loaned his lawnmower to Steve and Steve chipped the blade and he doesn't want to pay for it. And it was entertaining. So I, so when I got into magistrate court in 2012, I thought I might do that. But Cobb County doesn't do that during hours. So I just do criminal stuff, we, which um, is enter- entertaining. We, uh, we used to call it Thursday night fights. <laughs> when I was at Progressive, the first year I was there, I was in magistrate court probably in Cobb County, um, every Thursday night for, you know, some low impact rear end, right. you know, case where the value couldn't have been more than $15,000, but suit was filed or whatever. And as you described, we're sitting there and people are talking about the lawnmower being busted. And, um, 
you can actually learn a lot by sitting there and watching these things go down. You you can. I mean, I, I had a dentist. We were just there to argue 911 9.1 affidavit requirements should apply, but we're watching everything under the sun. And so, you know, sometimes it'd be a Jerry Springer like show, but you're right. You, you can learn a lot. Yeah. All right. So 2012, uh, what made you decide to go down that path? Um, I'm trying to Jack Slover, who actually came over when we joined the firm with Bill and Mike and Dan, Jack came with me. Jack heard, he knew somebody at Cobb County that knew somebody and learned there was a position opening. And he knew I, was, I had a slight interest. And selfishly, um, I, I was just interested in what a judge does. And then number two, I thought, well, shoot, maybe 15 years from now, I had, if my kid ever gets in trouble, <laughs> maybe that'll help me. Thankfully, I haven't needed that. But um, the first year was rough. I, I had to do uh, three shifts every two weeks from midnight to eight. So... Um, I do the midnight to eight shift rolling to work and then try to coach my kids soccer game and then get, you know, four or five hours sleep. And that was it. And I did that for a year and that almost killed me. So midnight to eight shift, uh, signing warrant applications, criminals coming in, they get like bond hearings or first appearances. Like I, I know nothing about the criminal world. So what, so, what does that look like? Yeah. So it, again, it can be, it can be very entertaining and, and it also makes you very thankful uh, for what you have when you see what, what a lot of folks don't have. Um, you'll be happy to know that this sector four is the safe, one of the safest precincts in Cobb County. So <laughs> you, you should be fine living here, but um, you, you get uh, Joe gets pulled over for DUI because someone saw him crossing lanes and he fails a test. And so Joe gets brought to the, to the uh, jail right at midnight. Cobb County would like, um, the Cobb County Sheriff wants first appearance to be within 24 hours. And first appearance, which we do every eight o'clock, which I do when I work the shift, 8 p.m., is all you do is, are you Joe Smith? Uh, do you understand the nature of your charges? Not do you agree with it, but do you understand what you're being charged with? And then you tell them if they're entitled to a bond, if so, the amount and how much. So that's first appearance. So that that's what we do. Um, but let's say that person does get arrested and taken to jail at 12. Probably take about three hours for paperwork and then you'll get Officer Johnson. Officer Johnson says, I, I arrested Joe. Here's my probable cause. And you go online video and you go through and, you know, make sure number one, they've checked the right statute. You make sure there's probable cause and then you sign off if you feel there's probable cause. So those are the, those are the, the warrants. And then you have search warrants which can get hectic. They jump the line. If you have an active shooter, you have a hostage situation, which isn't a whole lot, but we, you know, we do get some. Um, and then you have, there's very strict guidelines. You have to do it in a video. You have to record it. You have to get suspicion as to why it can't just be an informant told me there's a drug deal. It's got to be more than that. And so I've learned a good bit of criminal law, which I don't use in my own practice, but it's been interesting. So the, the, um, the, prosecutors, the solicitors, are these the same people you're seeing kind of time and time again? Come so I really don't see them because okay. I, so that first year I worked midnight, then I, then I, I slowed down a little bit and thankfully about five or six, seven years ago, I, I went to the head magistrate and said, listen, with my work and my travel and my kids, I, I can't do this, um, but I will offer you, I'll be like the on-call judge. If someone gets sick or something you need me to fill in, give me a call. I'm not saying I'll do it, and I'll pay my own judicial CLE. He's like, that's perfect. So now I get to basically select. So now I I used to work four to midnight on Sundays, which was great because you get the last part of the NFL and you get a nice NFL game because we have a TV in the background. So if it's a slow night, you're entertained. But so I'm not dealing, I'm not nine to five. Because I have my regular firm, so the solicitors and you know the DA, they're dealing with the folks who are there nine to five. I'm just at night, so I rarely interact with lawyers. Okay, there you go. Well, you mentioned NFL, so let's let's go to another one of your jobs, which which we talked about was the scout for the Raiders. I mean, that's that's what LinkedIn tells me. Scout for the Raiders. Talk and to me. You, you, I haven't looked at my LinkedIn for so long. Got that job. I'm trying to read. Oh, short story. Um, college. Want to work in sports. Before emails, before all that, you had to send a letter and you'd get a nice rejection letter. And the Cowboys rejection letter would be on this 
and gloss silver and blue stationery and the Cleveland Indians would be black and whatever they are maroon and and I had I think at the by the end of my senior year I had about 72 rejection letters from different teams I lived with five other guys and it was Marigliano's wall of shame but we loved it you, you're just sending out cold call letters you, emails you see I the Knicks you see the Broncos you see the Jets you know you see the Islanders so so it was great and I remember getting a rejection letter from the Raiders from, it was signed by a guy named Al Ocasau. And back then they actually would write you hey thank you for your C an application fortunately we have nothing that's it so i had nothing and so my last my senior year i, I was at penn i played football at penn we had we had i don't know at the month left before graduation we had a penn telethon to raise money for new uniforms and d-backs which i was and and wide receivers came in and you sit down this telephone bank and they give you cards of donors and there's a little card it would say josh stein graduated 1985 lives here donates a hundred dollars you know, a year and that's it. And you'd call and ask. And just by sheer happenstance and serendipity, I got, I saw Al Locasau, Los Angeles, you know, graduated, whatever. There's the connection, the there's the hook. I was like, you got to be kidding. And so it didn't say he worked for the Raiders, but right. I'm like, that's the You knew the of, name. That, yeah. That's the name. It's not Joe so, Smith. So I, I did my little spiel about, hey, would you, I actually got him, which was amazing. Uh, and then told him who I was calling. I forgot if he donated or not, but at the end of the conversation, I was like, I don't know if you remember, I actually sent you this and that. Um, you were kind enough to send me a rejection letter. And he was nice. He said, listen, he goes, everybody thinks we're like Xerox, uh, but we have like 30 employees and 28 of them have been here for 20 years. So good luck. So that was that. So after I graduated, I told my folks I want to go into sports. I had a job at Merrill Lynch, which it absolutely destroyed my mom. I turned down. I said, give me one year to figure this out. So I went out to LA just because a buddy's brother lived there. And so four of us went out for a week. I brought a suit and tie. I brought some CVs after we were parting. I went to the Dodger Stadium. Um, they weren't there. I, I wanted to speak with someone, but there was no one there. So, But I did get in. Hey, I, got to, I got to run the bases, which was kind of fun. Uh, I went to the- Chavez the Ravine, right? Chavez Ravine. It was great. But it, uh, the Raiders at the time were in LA and they had this old junior high school where it was their headquarters and it was right after the draft. And so I just walked in there like I own the place and said, I'm here at Seattle Ocasau. And the secretary checked, said, is he expecting you? And I played up the pen connect. Oh, yeah, I spoke with him back Talk in May. Phone, he yeah. told me to come out. And she said, well, he's not here today. I'll, I'll schedule you at 10 tomorrow. Perfect. Went back the next day. Uh, she let me in. And he was a small, bearded, stout guy. And the first thing he did, he kind of growls. Kind of, He's kind of like a raider. And he just growled and he goes, who the F? Uh, because where are you? And so I just stuck in my hand and pretended I didn't hear that and introduced myself. And somehow he warmed up. He introduced me to a guy named John Kingdon, the head of scouting, who was from originally 15 minutes away from where I grew up in Long Island. And we went back into the boardroom and it was one wall. It was just all... Um, whatever that uh, materials you got magic markers i remember it was cool because they had every player and every team lined up and he and he just started testing me he goes all right i'm gonna do this and he'd put different schemes and because i played four years at that time it was still fresh oh yeah that's this oh, that's so he this. wanted you to like look at plays and right. understand uh, so, schemes and stuff cool so he said tell you what at the end he goes i'll you can work for free he goes we're not gonna pay you, you can come to training camp in like a month uh, you can help out with the camera or whatever. And I said, perfect. My buddy Jeff oh, yeah. lived there. He was a bartender at Moose McGillicuddy's. Remember that bar? He got me a job. So I came home so excited to be a Raider employee. My mom called and said, some guy called, left a message with the Raiders. I called and and John said, listen, I, we can't bring you back, which broke my heart. I said, why not? He said, well, Al Davis doesn't know you. I go, but you know me now. He goes, sorry. He goes, but listen, go and the elbow. The old elbow, he goes, uh, the first game was the Patriots playing the Giants' first preseason game. I'm going to give you a list of guys. Go scout and let me know what you think. So go to non-Raider games? Non-Raider games. Non-Raider games, yeah. Because yeah. I, was, I was still living in New York. Yeah. And yeah. so he, so they sent me. So that summer or that fall, um, I went to the elbow. I went to Giants Stadium. I went down to Philly. Um, and so – it went over well. What basically they were looking at rookies and guys that are going to be Plan B free agents and X Raiders, and you give a you give a report. Al Davis apparently loved this because this is before you could stream things, before really the internet. And so Al Davis would go on the on his private plane every game, and when he got off the plane, John told me Al literally as soon as he touched the tarmac, he wanted somebody coming out with game reports from every game. 
again, this is before you could watch it. So that, um, I then went out, turns out I went to Iowa for my other career and was assistant GM. And then I went to law school, but John and I connected in law school. He said, listen, we just fired our scout in Atlanta. Would you be interested in being a Sunday scout? And so I started going to Falcons games that they would send me. So let's say the Falcons are playing the Cowboys. They'd give me a list of both. Mm-hmm. And I'd, afterwards I call in. Uh, what was nice is the, the Falcons had a policy. You can't sit in the press box unless it's uh, preseason, which was great because then you have monitors, they had free food you sit next to. Doug Williams or Joe Theismann or Mark Malone because they were scouting for teams. Right. Um, but you could sit in the press box if your team, i.e. the Raiders, was playing either Falcons or their opponent in the next two weeks. Didn't happen often, so a lot of times I'm sitting um, with low-season tickets with my binoculars, writing things down as fans are going drunk around me. But, I'll say you're sitting in Section 337. Right. Like, trying to see but, but it was fun. I loved it. And when we moved to Mississippi for the bar, then they transferred me over. Then I went to all the Saints games for two years. And then when I came back to Atlanta, uh, I went to the Falcons games. And it was great. I loved it. It was fun. I went to the Super Bowl when they got smoked by Tampa. So how many years did you do this for? 16 years. Wow. Al Davis died, I think, on a Monday and on a Wednesday. All of us got emails from now current owners. Mark, Mark Davis is. saying, thank you so much, you're fired. So Mark just, just changed the entire... Well, apparently Mark, or John told me Mark had been trying for 10 years to get his dad because, you know, when I started late ni- late 90s, um, you know, again, you couldn't stream NFL Live and all that. But the last 10 years, certainly by 2008, 2010, they could get that information, not have to pay us. So, so you're a former football player at a high level. When you're reporting back on Monday or Sunday night, what are the things that you're looking at to say, okay, well, the Falcons are doing this or the Cowboys are doing that. This player's doing this. So, yeah, so I'll just distinguish. So it was, for the most part, it was players. They want to know. So, for instance, Grady Jackson, or uh, it wasn't Grady Jackson, I'm sorry. Um, Rod Coleman started with the, with the Raiders. They let him go and they was the Falcon. For some reason, they had, I guess they had seller's remorse. They wanted to know about him. So I always had to do a Rod Coleman report. I had to do rookies and I had to guy, do guys that were coming up for free agents. Preseason was chaos because the rosters are, you know, 88 guys mm-hmm. and all these rookies are playing at the same time. And so what you would try to do is group them. All right. Uh, let's say the Saints have a rookie cornerback and he's on the Falcons rookie, rookie wide receiver. I'll watch them for five plays. And how's the receiver cutting? Is he using his hands? Is he putting his arms out, catching the ball, or is he trying to catch it with his body? Um, what what's he, is he using a good swim move? Conversely, defensive back, is he low in his back pedal? Can he shift his hips? Things like that. And then I'd focus, all right, I've got a I got a nose guard and I, I got an offensive guard. I follow them. So they just wanted to know, you know, I remember the, the worst thing I ever did. Uh, when they were rookies, Patriots came in preseason. It was Aaron Hernandez and Gronkowski. They were the same draft class. And I said, this Hernandez is going to turn out to something. I just don't see so this Gronkowski. <laughs> that, remi- that, reminds so me, that. that reminds me. It's so funny you say that. You know, Twitter is always good about pulling up like the Greg Maddox scouting report from 1986. You know, like the guy wrote like, I just don't see it with this guy. Like, you know, <laughs> fastball tops out at 88 and changeup has movement, but not major league stuff. And, yeah, that that's just so funny. So, Gronkowski, yeah. you didn't see it with him. No, and, and maybe, maybe he just had a bad day, but he he was kind of slow and awkward. It, it took him a while to get out of his block. They didn't throw to him, so he was he was just a, a blocking back. I mean, never thought – I mean, his hands were fantastic at the end. And massive. And he was Huge. massive, and he would run – I mean, the beauty of Gronkowski – is when he caught the ball, he could run over four guys. And so maybe that just didn't happen that game. But Aaron Hernandez was a matchup nightmare. I mean, he was he was too big for a cornerback. He was too fast for a linebacker. He was smooth. I'm like, and I think they drafted Hernandez before Gronkowski. So, but yeah, so we'd report that. Only a couple times did they say, we want to know formations. And I remember, do you remember the greatest show on turf with oh, yeah, the Warren, Rams and Falk and yeah. Isaac Bruce? They wanted to know... Um, about certain situations. I remember telling them when, when Marshall Falk went in motion into the slot, not, not to the X, but into the slot, they were going to run a certain play, uh, pick play where he went. And um, so I, I called that in. And later that year, I, they went to the Super Bowl, I think against New England. They ran that exact yeah, I, play. I saw it. I knew it. Yes. I yes. saw it. So would the average fan just have their, would their minds be blown with how much data and information is being you know, provided to these NFL franchises? They would. They absolutely would. And the, the, the downside is you can't go to the game as a, as a fan. And the Falcons, 
you know, that, that was back that Keith Brooking and, you know, they had some good teams and I would miss awesome plays. Like there was a 70 yard bomb. I'm, I didn't see any of that because I'm seeing what the center's technique You're was. You're staring so at I'm, number I'm 61. By yeah. 61. And I didn't see. So I was at every game for 16 years and I missed a ton of plays because I was so focused in well, on a particular That's player. actually a blessing. Not having to watch the Falcons game, actually watch them and root for them is a blessing. Yeah, I guess it was. But that's why I can never do fantasy football. I just, I, I don't know. I never, my buddies, we did fantasy basketball, fantasy baseball. I just couldn't do couldn't fantasy. Do it. Now, would you follow the NFL still though? I mean, watch it. Oh, I love, I, your I, team? love I love the NFL. Uh, uh, other than the Raiders, of course. Yeah, they're such a sad sack. Um, so I grew up a giant. <laughs> fan because my, my uncle had season tickets and if I was lucky I could go once a year um, and then I was also shockingly a Vikings fan because my dad went to a convention in Minnesota when I think I was in first grade or second grade and brought me back a jersey it was kindergarten I wore that jersey that purple jersey every day because it was the only football jersey I had so I'm a dual Viking and Giant fan and I have a soft spot for the Raiders but they're 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 hapless not a Falcons fan they're hapless you know um I can't say I'm a fan, but um, I certainly like him more than the Braves. I pulled for them in the pitch. Yeah, you're a Mets guy. We won't, we won't even go there. I'm, I'm going to spare the Mets versus Braves. But as a Northeastern, I, 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 have to, I have to hate Dallas, Philly, and Boston. So I was heartbroken when they lost to the Patriots. But I, I, I did pull. I went to enough games. I liked them. And I always thought it was nice to see the kid who got picked on the street, who got bullied, finally got big enough to bully others. So I, I was rooting for that little kid. Right. So. No, that, that, that's good. So I love your story about the um, Vikings jersey that it was random, right? I mean, totally, totally he, random. Yeah. If he had gone yeah. to Chicago for the convention, I'd be, gotten a that, be a Bears fan. Yeah, I love it. I love hearing that story. So um, my son is a Bills fan, and it's kind of a similar reason why. So his, um, about two or three years ago, he got super into fantasy football. Like, the dude loves it. He can spit out every single, you know, statistic and how many points someone's going to get. And he drafted Josh Allen right when Josh Allen was starting to go off and he had a massive season and took Graham all the way to the finals, whatever. And so Josh Allen became his favorite player and we got him a Josh Allen Jersey that he now wears. And so he's a bills guy. I mean, it's, you know, no, he, I mean, he, he lucked out. Number one, they're good colors, red, one, blue. They go with everything. Number two, if you can cut down, cut down his picks or not, Josh Allen is still one of the stud. And as long as he's there, they have a chance. They have a chance. So, that's a good team. I, I picked the team that never <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I grew up, my dad, people have heard me say this before, he's the last remaining every Sunday will watch the Falcons. Like he is, you know, he had God season tickets him. from 1966 when they came here. And he, you know, I'll call him or we'll text at five o'clock on Sunday. And I'll be like, dad, you just wasted another three hours of your life, didn't you? He's like, yeah, I did. So I can't do that to my son. I can't <laughs> go, go for the bills. The, the problem is I'm fully convinced, you know, that, the sports part of your brain pushes out so much thing, including reason. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, rationally, only one team wins each season. So you know your chances of being happy at the end of the season are slim to none, yet, yet we're idiots and we still go forward. Well, we're playoff time. So, uh, you know, starts this week. Who, who you got? Who you think's going to. Man, I, I hate to be that guy. I, I, I think. I think right now the Niners and, and the Ravens are the, are the, are the, are the, are the class. Ooh. But, but I, I said I would love to see Cleveland, Detroit. I'd love to see the, the poor, pitiful teams rise from the debris. And actually, I think Detroit has a decent shot. You know, if you look at them, they, they, should, they should win the first game. Then they'd have to go to Dallas. I think Dallas would get by Green Bay. They just went to Dallas, but for a, I'll say, as an, as an official myself in the sport, I, I don't like to slam officials. But for a curious call, they very well could have won that game. And then then they would go out probably to San Francisco. So I don't think Detroit's going to make it. But I think after San Francisco, they have as good a shot as anybody. That was a bad call, though. Yeah. <laughs> it was a bad call. The one thing it I was a bad call. Seeing it on TV with 18 replays and being there alive in a split second, I, I, I have compassion for officials. All right, I'll take your segue and I'll run with it. So you mentioned you're an official yourself. I mentioned the MMA in the beginning. Um, so let everybody know what it is that you do as an official with MMA. So for the last 11 years, I, I judge MMA and kickboxing and sometimes boxing events and basically 
get criticized every single time by somebody. <laughs> no one's happy. People hate the officials. No, no, no nobody. If there's a split decision, oh, it, it, it's it's the worst. It's the worst crime since the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. So I don't know enough about um, about any of that to ask really good questions of you. Sure. To be honest, <laughs> so uh, you know, how'd you get into it? What kind of matches are you officiating? What's your role? What are you looking at? Again, I don't have good questions. Sure. So, so, so let me break it down because my mom, for 10 years, she, she still doesn't know what the heck it is. So she always says, are, are, are you doing MMA or, or are you just doing UFC? So MMA is the sport, like football is a sport. So the NFL is the king of football, but the NFL is not necessarily synonymous. People think MMA, that's UFC. UFC is the biggest promotion, but then there's other promoters there. Well, there was Bellator, but now there's PFL, there's Legacy there. So there's different promotions, all that govern MMA. So the, the legal side, and this is how I got into it, is that in Georgia and now <laughs> Alabama went kicking and screaming, but they're regulated now. Um, you have to regulate what we call unarmed combat. So that's mixed martial arts. That's... Uh, that's kickboxing or Muay Thai, um, and that's boxing. And so mixed martial arts is simply what – it's a variation. It, it, it's wrestling, it's boxing, it's kickboxing, it's jiu-jitsu, it's sambo, it's that. And so the state of Georgia has to regulate it. And so you can't just have a tough man brawl in the bar anymore. I can't just say, hey, come on over January 10th to wherever. Right. I mean, as a private – you could, but you can't – charge money. You can't, you can't sell t-shirts. You can't make money off it. So if you're going to pit two guys and, and try to make money off it, the, the George Athletic and Entertainment Commission, which also regulates Ticketmaster, needs to get involved. There's a five commissioner board who right now, I think we have one of the best commissions in the country. We, we have a black belt doctor, uh, um, Chris Horosky, he's an orthopedic surgeon. We have Jeff Traub on it, very well-known orthopedic surgeon. We have a black belt jiu-jitsu practitioner, Clay Ben. We have Rick Thompson, who's been doing this forever. And we got Seth, who's, I think, a purple belt. In the 10 years ago, we had guys who aspired for political positions, didn't know anything about the sport. Now we got guys in it. But anyway, so it has to be regulated. So someone has to judge it. So before I was a judge, I had, in my working days in um, – in Mississippi, one of our one of our clients and I became friends with a guy named Alan Belcher. At a later date, you can look him up. But he was he was just starting his UFC career and he actually got a title shot, which unfortunately he lost. But we developed a friendship. He was younger than me. He had a small little gym. Um, I was still a lawyer, so I helped him out. And so I started work with him. I kind of got into it. So when I went back to Atlanta, I said, you know, I'd love to stay involved in MMA. And I just started figuring out who does the fights? I got in touch with the largest fight promoter, Dave Obliss, who I'll give a shout out to him. He, he's the biggest promoter in the state. Uh, NFC Monday Night Brewing, Saturday 20th, uh, January 20th. If Let's I can go. throw that out there. Let's go. Um, he put me in touch with Andy Foster, who was the executive for the Athletic Commission. And he's one of the most unique people you'll ever meet. He's from Dalton. He has a thick Dalton accent. And he's a big, bald guy, but over, he's fought in Russia. He's refed, he's trained, he's promoted, and somehow he loves politics. So if you try to find a politician that can regulate sport, Andy's your guy. Yeah. And so I got in touch with Andy. And so he started training me to supervise the show. And so I was not a judge, but I had to make sure the doctor was there, the ambulance. This guy got his HIV test. This guy got his hepatitis C test. And so you were representing the state. Did that for two years when I got uh, become a magistrate judge. I couldn't work for both the executive branch and the legislative branch. I couldn't double down. Couldn't double couldn't down. Do both. Had to resign. Separation of powers. I know. I, you know, I, I, I forgot about that from Schoolhouse Rock. I still don't know how, how a bill becomes a law, but I have to go back to Schoolhouse Rock for both of those. Um, Aren't anybody, your kids learning you know, uh, U.S. government and constitution in school right now? Yeah, but it wasn't as cool as those commercials. If you're under 40, I apologize for that reference. You don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but they said, listen, stay involved. Just become a judge. The promoter pays you directly. So that's, so that's what happens. So the NFC is the biggest one in Georgia. They do a show. They probably do 14 shows. Um, but then when other shows come through, like Bellator used to, um, they can hire you too. The, the dream, obviously, is UFC. I've UFC, been lucky yeah. enough to do a couple of those. Yeah, but you've done some of those too, right? So first one I did as, as, as a um, kind of officiant, um, the last one I did as a judge, which was 
great. Was that when you went to California or was that something different? Because uh, you were in California a couple times recently, right? So I've been to California a bunch this year. We did Bellator 290 and Bellator 300. And 300 was fantastic because it was our second to last show. They just got bought out. But every if you follow MMA, every star was there and got honored. Um, Hoist Gracie, the original UFC champ. Matt Hughes. Uh, who's a dominant champ. Unfortunately, got hit, literally got hit by a train. And so he's not as he used to be. But Chuck Liddell um, was there. Chael Sonnen was there. Rampage Jackson was there. It, it, so it, it was star-studded. Sold out the forum. was about 20,000. So that was that was a lot of fun. And the fans of, of, of UFC and MMA, I mean, those are rabid fans. Like, they are in Rabid fans. And rabid so fans. when you're sitting there officiating, I mean, kind of like the NFL, I mean, they have who they're rooting for, and they don't like – is it – are you okay? Let me back up. Like I said, in boxing, you score a round to somebody, right? Like 10 9 or 10 8. That's right. Is that similar to how would y'all very, doing? Very similar. Very similar. And the problem is there's. There's, there's many rounds that there's a clear answer, but there's a good number, 10, 15%. You don't know. So for instance, let's say it's a professional fight. It's five minutes. Let's say first second of the round, I take you down. I, and now, and I'm on top of you and I'm not really hurting you. I'm not really coming close to submission, but I, I kind of dominate you for four hours. Four, I'm sorry, four minutes where you're not, you're not landing punches and all you're trying to do is survive. We get back to our feet for the last minute. And then you absolutely pepper me where I've got a black eye for one minute. The question is who won that round? Does my four minutes of some dominance, but not a whole lot of damage, does that take precedent over just the last minute where you did hurt me, but I'm fine going into the next round? And that's always going to be a clash of opinions. So when you get rounds like that, people are going to be upset. And does it always fall to your discretion? I mean, whatever whatever you as the official see and believe? It, it does, but there there are some very, there's rules out there. And we, we it sounds silly, but we undergo training. Mm -hmm. um, you have to I get certified every two years by the ABC, but I take training courses. Um, California does a great job doing that. During COVID, we had monthly Zoom. We would just watch fights and they would say, all right, why do you score this 10-9? Should this be a 10-8? And you have to give your explanation. So it's kind of like, to me, a strike zone is probably more clear because you can see that ball and you can argue right, the ball is a little off the plate, but usually you know what a strike is with the with the benefit of with benefit of replay. In our business, we, we had a Zoom call the other day. We're still a lot of folks were divided, you know, yeah. but there 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 is um, very specific requirements how you score it, how how you favor one over the other. And do you? Does the score come at the end? So is there just one score that's released? Yes, and, and that's a source of controversy. So what I mean by that, so in a typical fight, let's say this Saturday, most of the amateurs, so it's three-minute rounds. So what happens, uh, red and blue go, and I'll say Stein over Goldner. It wasn't even close. Of course it's going to be. Stein, yeah. I hope you're listening, Andy. So Stein in the red corner. Easiest bet in town. 10 and Goldner with the blue with an eight, which, which is kind of a whooping. And so, Again, clearly that's what's going to happen. <laughs> right. I, I want this to be based on real life experiences. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of the first round, the way we do, the ref will come over, you hand him the scorecard, and it goes to the event official. And so I don't know what the other two did after the second and the third, and the event official is tallying them. And then at the end, you'll hear 30, 27, 29, 28, whatever it might be. The controversy is a lot of fans say there should be open scoring. And what they want is like at the end of the first round, it's everybody sees Stein 10, Golden Rate. Um, and there's pros and cons for both. And what fighters say, well, I'd love to know where if I'm, at, I'm losing. Where I stand. But on the flip side, and Andy, who, who originally hired me in Georgia, went out to California. And now he's probably the most powerful commissioner in the country, uh, which is why, thankfully, I get to go out there a good bit. Andy's against it. Um, well, I don't want to speak for him. I, there's, there's folks against it because they have seen where if I know I'm up, uh, let's see, if I'm up 20 to 18 on you, I'm not really going to engage because I don't want to get more. knocked out. Yeah. And so there's pros and cons on both. The, the human element is if let's say it's wrestling versus boxer and we have that scenario where I, I come from more of a wrestling background, but still within the defined criteria, I'm favoring the three and a half, four minutes of wrestling over the one minute striking. If I know, wow, I'm the only guy that went the wrestler 
for the first round and then it's put, wow, I'm the only guy that is going to impact me. I hate to say it, but it's just human nature. Sure. I now know I'm going completely different than, and all of a sudden your objectivity goes out. So there's thoughts. Well, can you do it where the judges don't know? And only the fight, can you do it where you, they tell the corner man so he can tell the fighter, but the fans don't know. Um, so that's a debate. It's fascinating. So for the fans out there that like to dog cuss the officials, the umpires, the ref, they're idiots, they're blind. Explain to them how much goes into all this and how much, you know, true work and getting it right and how hard it is to make these decisions in real time. So I've and be- I'm guilty of this too, by the way. And, and listen, it's human nature. Oh my <laughs> God. But I've become friends with officials in, in most sports. To me in basketball, you, you could you could technically go a foul anytime, anytime a guy goes to the lane. Anytime. Yeah. So there there's certainly judgment there. And then so I get it. Do, do you want to call a foul with the game tied, you know, and there's point two left on just because LeBron's complaining? The judgment call, NFL is tough. I mean, yes, you got six guys and they're all watching, but it happens so quickly. Um, can you tell if it's incidental or not? I I I it is different when you're doing it live than when you're watching. And even for us, our problem, it's an octagon or it's a cage. And the reason you have three and various parts is because you're going to miss some of it and you're going to get it wrong. And what I mean by that is you and Andy are grappling in the corner and I've got- I'm kicking bu- his ass. Please include that. In and you're, you're absolutely destroying him. Um, but I, I, I can see you on top of him, but I don't know, you've got a rear naked locked in, or you've got a Kimura, but because of my angle, I don't know how deep that is. And so the judge sitting right there said, wow, uh, it looks bad, but Andy's doing fine. His chin's down. Josh is not under it. So I'm not crediting as much where I'm kind of guessing because the back and just the way you're sitting. And so that's why there are three judges. Not because every three has to get it right, because if somebody has a bad vantage point, which you will at some point, the other two can correct. Some more checks and balances, right? We're going back to U.S. government. Yeah, I think this is what Madison and Jefferson talked about. That's it. That's it. What's the adrenaline rush you get before they ding, ding, ding and start? Well, as a competitor, it's a lot of different job. I'm, I'm, I'm the old guy at the cage trying not to screw up some guy's career. Right. For, for, for them, and I know a lot of the fire, I mean, it, it's everything. And, you know, you can say, and eh, there's, there's 1,200 people here and we're at a brewery, but these people have dedicated the last three months of their yeah. lives. You still, you still competing? No, I mean, I, I, I do jiu-jitsu. I used to do Krav. I, I go to a gym where it's kind of... Don't kill the old guy, uh, right. which I like. <laughs> so, but no, I, I actually, I enjoy it, but I also um, started jiu-jitsu. I said, if I'm going to be a good judge, I need to know exactly where the, the thumb needs to go, where the elbow, how is his ankle turned so I can be a better score to know, should I give credit for the submission or not? Be really a student of the... Right. It, it, it's tough to be a judge if you, you don't have a basic understanding of jiu-jitsu and what the moves are and what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. I love it, man. Well, um I've tried very hard to pack all of this stuff in ha. in the hour. You, my friend, are the Dos Equis guy. No, I don't think I am. I mean, we but just they will do it again. I, they, I, I got a bunch of stories. I know you got a bunch of stories. I think we need to do it again. I think that I think these are all things we need to just dive into anymore. I know you talked about doing your own podcast. I, th- I think you need to. I think you need to. What, you have what, a lot to share with the we, world. We will not step on 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 Torsten's. No, we, we would never step on that. No, we, it's kind of like the USFL said we'd like to do, but we're gonna do the summer because we know we can't go up against the NFL. No, I, I, I'm I, the USFL. No, team, you're not, dude. You, you you need to uh, you need to you need to get yourself a podcast with all this extra time you have between all this thousand things you're doing. Nothing to do, man. I'm just wondering what do I do next. <laughs> <laughs> well. I'll be waiting and watching with what you do next um, because it's fascinating, man. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, w- I would like Mr. Goldner to know nothing is is, fa- is defamable um, because we were doing so in a lighthearted manner. There you go. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a good sport. So, um, yeah, all right, man. Well, tell people where they can find you. Um, you know, email address, firm website. I don't know if we can get the firm name out, but just people, they hear from you like, that guy's awesome. We want to reach out to him. How do they find you? Yeah, for that one person that could bear through the New York accent, which comes out after which is I not try- very strong, by the way. No, it's not. And that's that's the benefit of dry January. If, if I had a couple in me, I'd sound like Stallone and Rocky too. Uh, so that is a benefit. It's uh, PMHP. So technically, Prieto, Marigliano, Holbert, and Prieto. We got two Cubans, an Italian, and, and a redneck from Carolina. But it's easier, PMHP law. Uh, nursing home, med mal, and uh, trucking and car wrecks. But um, we're we're on the web. Uh, love to hear from you. If for some reason Mr. Stein gets conflicted there out, you go. <laughs> uh, there's got to be a joke that starts like that. You know, the, the however you said it, the two Italians, a Cuban, and a redneck walking to a bar. Like it's got it's got to be a joke, right? 
<laughs> and, and somehow they, they, they walk out with the 25,000 tender and Josh walks out with the million dollar. Pay, so. <laughs> well, I don't know about all that, but uh, hey, I hope everybody does well. All right, guys. Thank you all for listening. I know that you enjoyed this as much as I did. We hit a lot. My man, John, has got great stuff to talk about. And we're going to have him back. We're going to do another hour and dig in even more. Take so, it. John, Take my it, man, I appreciate you. And uh, we will see you all next week. I'm going to be pumping, pumping some stuff out about the uh, fundraiser in March. Hope everybody gets excited and on board. And uh, Let's get that then, haircut off, let's guys. get that haircut. Until next time, as always, guys, keep chopping. <laughs>